0: Uh, So if you would, open up to page three. I think this study will probably cover a couple things that you know, and then I think a couple things we'll run into and talk about might go into areas that maybe you haven't thought about before. So we'll have fun together. Let me pray for our time. Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us. I thank you that we get to talk about you tonight. I pray that your word would be clear. I pray that you give me the ability to teach it with clarity and with accuracy. May nothing be said that is untrue. Uh, So, Lord, guide our time, guide our hearts, guide the conversation. May we just glorify and enjoy you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump into session one. The title of session one is The Person of Christ, Eternal, Creator, and the Jehovah God, of the Old Testament, so there at the top of page three, there's a couple verses. The first one, John one one. Anybody know what John one one says? This was my best. This is my best group with that. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word. Okay, Jesus is the Word, and He was God, okay? Not like God, not close to God, not similar to God. He was God. John 5.26 says this, As the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. John John 8.58. Maybe you'll remember this. Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. So he's talking to a crowd. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. How did the crowd respond to that? Do you remember? Did the crowd cheer? No, they picked up stones. So, why did they get mad at that? saying that he was Yeah. But uh, that was, was first Yeah, we jumped down to John eight fifty eight, which is on the right side of the page. Sorry, Trudy. I'm jumping around. So that reference, I am, where does it come from? Exodus
1: 3.
0: Good, good, Exodus 3. So out of the burning bush, God says, I am, I am. So when Jesus says that, they all know, because he's speaking to Jewish people, when he says, I am, he's saying, I'm the same one who was speaking out of that burning bush. We are the same. And you and I, if we were there, if we had not yet believed in Jesus, we would probably have picked up a stone also. Just realize that if we hadn't believed in jesus we would have been like that's anathema let's give this guy one and we would have picked up a rock okay let's look at the points jesus knew who he was and he clearly implied his eternal nature to his listeners and the listeners had every intention to stone him based upon this statement now Throughout church history, there were these councils and creeds that came together to protect the church from false teaching. The Council of Nicaea in 325 was one of those, and there was this heresy called the Arian heresy. And the Arian heresy was basically this concept that Christ came into being at a point in time, that Jesus himself was not the creator, but he was part of the created. So there was a point in time when Jesus was not, and then he was created, and then he was okay this isn't just an issue that the church faced 300 years ago like there are still whispers and shadows of that here in the valley i don't know if you've ever heard that but there are people who love jesus but don't quite get this piece yet all right they think that jesus was at some point created what might be some of the consequences of us falling into this aryan heresy what if we believe that what would be some of the theological consequences of believing that and I'd like you to have the mic when you answer. Pass that back to Dan.
1: Uh, if Jesus himself isn't God, you have no atonement for your sins. Why not? Because you have no uh, sacrifice for your sins.
0: Good. So if Jesus isn't at the same value and level of worth and authority as God the Father, then when the fullness of the wrath of God lands on Jesus, he wouldn't have been able to take it. The father needs to stand across from someone who is like equal to him in worth and weight and magnitude, or else he would have been obliterated when God the father would have poured his wrath out onto Jesus. Also, if Jesus was created, that means in some form or fashion, he would have been dependent upon the one who created him. Jesus would have been a dependent being, being not an independent person. Those are two very different things. Okay? So the weight of the person on the cross had to be equal with the weight of the one who was pouring his wrath out onto him to survive that. Wouldn't it have, Thank you. Wouldn't
1: it have blown the whole um, triune God, the Trinity, right out of
0: the. Yeah, water? and then there's also no Trinity, by the way. So good point. Yes. Yes, good point. I didn't say that. So if you don't have Jesus being part of the Trinity, there is no Trinity. And that's a core doctrine of our church, um, of the church. <clears throat> if Christ no longer shares in God's eternal and infinite qualities, Jesus would be considered dependent. He would align more closely to God's creation than to God himself. All right. Um, John Walford. have you ever heard that name? A guy named John Walford. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a lot of years. Uh, I'm going to quote this book a lot. If you just want a really good book on Jesus going really in depth, I would pick up this book, Jesus Christ our Lord by John Walvert is a really good one. It says the arguments for his eternity and for his deity are inseparable. Like, you can't say that he's deity, but he's also been created. If you were to say he was deity, it would have to be a lowercase d, okay? For him to be a capital D deity, it means that he is eternal, like the Father, like the Spirit. That precludes itself. Let's look at some more verses that just simply say Jesus was eternal. Isaiah nine six, which is clearly referring to the coming Messiah, says that He is the everlasting Father. So even though it's referring to God the Son, it calls Jesus the everlasting Father. Everlasting there means everlasting. No trick there. That's what it means. Hebrews twelve eight says Jesus is the same yesterday, today tomorrow forever there's never been any change or alteration in who Jesus is if he went from being uncreated to created that would be a change Hebrews twelve eight says that there was no change ever in his nature John 14 9 he's hanging out with his disciples and the disciples at one point just say if you would just show us the father that would be enough like you're okay we like hanging out with you Jesus but if you would just show us the father that would be enough and Jesus looks at him and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in other words, there's nothing lacking when you see Jesus. It's not like you see Jesus, but if only you got to see the main show. He's not the, like tonight, there'll probably be an act, somebody will get up that we don't know, and he'll sing a couple songs, and then Matt and R will get up and he'll be the, the main show. Jesus isn't like the opening act and the Father's the main show. They are equal with one another. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Jesus says that. Um, <clears throat> in Micah 5.2, a, it's a messianic prophecy where it talks about the one who's going to save us, the coming Messiah is gonna be from Bethlehem, all right? Which, I mean, that would be like around here, someone saying the greatest person in the history of the world is coming out of Boone County. All right, nothing wrong with Boone County, but like it's a little place, and you just don't think greatest people in the world coming from Boone County, you just don't think that. So that's like this Bethlehem reference. Like people would say, Really? Now, some of you are saying, Okay, I'm, not, I'm sorry, probably shouldn't have poked there, but but the, it goes on to say that this one who's coming from Bethlehem, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So the one who is coming is from the days of eternity. There was never a time or a point where he didn't exist. He comes from eternity. Alright. Revelation 1-8, he says, says I'm the grow. Alpha and the Omega. All of the beginning, I'm there. Everything in the end, I'm there. And therefore everything in between, I'm also there. He's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he's Everywhere, always. He's eternal in nature. Colossians 2 9 says, For in Jesus the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness. So he's not 99% deity. He is 100% deity. There's not one aspect or one quality or one part of Jesus that is less than the deity of the Father. He is 100% deity. Let's go to the next page. If you like quotes, you're gonna like this one. This is a good one. At the top, this guy named Charles Hodge Hodge, uh, is talking about Jesus and he says this. All divine names and titles are applied to Jesus. He is called God, God, the mighty God, the great God, God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. All divine attributes are described to Jesus. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty and immutable, the same yesterday, today and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by him and for him and by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest. All the angels are commanded to prostrate themselves before Jesus. Charles Hodge does a good job making much of Jesus. As we read scripture, much is to be made of Jesus. Okay, so the first point there is Jesus is eternal, he's uncreated, he's equal with the Father. The Bible says that clearly over and over again. That part you probably knew. This part you may or may not know. So in Matt's sermon on Sunday, he talked about, maybe it was Good Friday, Maybe it was Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, remember when he said, sorry, I'll get there eventually. Um, I'm heavily medicated, so I feel like my brain is floating. Uh, He said the cross is why God created the world. Do you remember that? He and I talked about that before he said it. I said, can we talk a little bit more before you say that? Um, But we didn't get a chance to talk anymore. So I'm not gonna say that's wrong, but I think there's a little bit more to it than just saying God created the world for the sake of the cross. There's this concept that's been around for a long time and all conservative theologians would agree with it. It's this idea of the eternal covenant of redemption. What that means is before anything was created, God, the triune God, decided what was going to happen. When the fall happened, God wasn't surprised. God didn't go into panic mode. God wasn't like, well, what do I do now? Now that they made a mistake, how in the world do we respond? Like the Mission and Impossible music doesn't, kick on, music doesn't kick in. Like he already knew it was gonna happen and he already had a plan in place for what he was going to do. There's, yeah, there's, there was no, plan. it's still the same, same <laughs> plan. Like God knew it was going to happen. So oh. knowing it was gonna happen, there was no surprise in that Jesus, the son of God, would be the one who would die on the cross. There was no surprise that God the Father was the one who would pour the wrath on Jesus the Son. There was no surprise that it was the Holy Spirit who was gonna live within those who believe. All those roles, responsibilities, and decisions were made before a single Adam was created. They knew, okay? Let's read this in paragraph. In eternity past, creation was considered determined and planned in the Godhead or in the Trinity before it was spoken into being. The fall was not a surprise. The triune God did not draw straws to see who would die on the cross for the sin of mankind. However, decisions were made. The Lord decided amongst himself how things would play out and how the role of each part of the Trinity would work. This decision or promise in some circles has been called a covenant, which is like a contract or a commitment between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word covenant was chosen because it's the language that God often uses when he describes a contractual relationship with his people. So there was this like contractual or commitment that they made amongst one another, who was gonna do what, and what role each would play. So they knew ahead of time, before they said, let there be, that this plan would be going into action. They knew, they weren't surprised, and they had it all planned out. So if in the back of your mind saying that's a real, what, where did you read that? Where did you get that from? John Walvoord, I'm gonna read something from what we would call a dispensational theologian. If you know what that means, great. If you don't, great. Uh, I'm also gonna read from Louis Berkhof, which would be considered a covenant theologian. And, and they're both gonna say the same thing about this. So I want you to hear those two quotes. A careful reading of the Bible will reveal that the plan of salvation was not an emergency device conceived after the fall of man as a plan of rescue, but rather it was a solemn decision of God eternity past in contemplating the whole of creation all this was as certain and clear to God from eternity past as it will be from the viewpoint of eternity future in eternity past God made a covenant of grace between himself and the elect that is the church and a covenant of redemption between the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit in regards to the work of salvation how it would be played out who would do what okay Louis Burkhoff says this, the covenant of redemption may be defined as the agreement between the father giving the son as head and redeemer of the elect and the son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the father had given him. Okay, so any conservative theological book that you pick up that talks about this will describe it in a very similar way. So this is a consistent thing that's taught throughout conservative Christianity. Any quick questions about that with your microphone?
1: Does that mean that this was because of God's omniscience, simply that he knew how it was going to all unfold, or because we're all mind-numb robots, that this
0: was, or Adam and Eve were anyway? Were Adam and Eve mind-numb robots? I would say Adam and Eve actually had it was free will on display at the highest level, would be what, what I would say. But the choice of beings that have free will does not mean that those are choices that are unknown to an omniscient God. Does that make sense? Um, All right, let's play with free will just for a second because it's a fun topic. Um, So in the Garden of Eden, man truly had free will. He also had a holy nature to go along with it. Like, there was no sinful nature inside of Adam and Eve. Like, he really was given the best opportunity possible to have that free will to make choices that honored God. And for a short period of time, we don't know exactly how long, Adam and Eve did. Their internal world looked like this. I trust God, and I love God, and he's gonna take care of me. Like, their internal world believed those things. Outside of the Garden of Eden, Satan fell. So there was sin in God's creation, not in humanity, not in the Garden of Eden, but sin slithered in in the form of a serpent. Right. And then he tempted them. And through the temptation, what you'll see happening is, is Eve's internal monologue starts to change. Eve starts saying, you start seeing in the way Eve is responding to the serpent, that she's starting to question whether or not God really has her best in mind. She's starting to question, is God maybe... Oppressive Is God really most concerned about taking care of himself? So it went from, I trust him, I love him, to I'm not sure if I can trust him. I'm not sure if he loves me. I better take care of myself. And then reaches out and grabs the apple. Okay? So I think even without the sinful nature and having free will with just the insertion of a tempter, man sinned. We just did. We sinned. Now, I've heard some people say, well, if you or I would have been there, we probably would have made a better decision.
1: Okay, I've heard that.
0: Now, now, every single day, with every single sin, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God provides a way out for you and me. So before you and I choose a certain thought, a certain attitude, or a certain action, God has provided us with a way out to not make that choice, or to have that thought, or that desire. He's given that to us. We have a way out. But over and over again, you and I don't choose the way out. We choose what we want, okay? So every single day, we all prove that we would have eventually made the same decision that Adam and Eve would have made because you and I make the same decision that Adam and Eve made all the time. Now we have a sinful nature, but God's also given us a way out, all right? So both of those things are there. So you're never gonna hear me say, or pray out loud, God, I want more free will, give me more free will. Because what I see is whenever free will is on display, it's man making choices that are usually independent of God rather than dependent on God. Choices that seem to honor God seem to be choices that are made with reliance on God, where I'm holding onto his hand with both of my hands. Help me, show me, guide me, lead me, empower me, help me do this. Those seem to be the moments when we tend to honor him the most. So I want that kind of connection with God. I'm okay praying, God, I don't want free will. You just, you, I want you to lead every step that I take, every word that I say, every desire I have. I want it to be from you, not from me. So you're not going to ever hear me trying to protect my own free will because I know when I really do have free will, I don't make great choices. Um, Now, I'm not saying we don't have free will because every time I make a choice that's sinful, I get full credit for it, right? Full credit. (laughs) So I really, so you're just not going to hear me fight for it. I hear some people fight for it. I don't want to fight for it. Every time we get some, we make a bad choice with it. So, <clears throat> so that's my thought on that. Uh, let's go to the next page. Page five. So who created the world? Who created it? Uh, Normally, the most natural reading of Genesis 1, because Because you don't see Jesus yet yet in Genesis 1, is just to assume that the Father did all the work. He's the one who created everything. But in Colossians 1, which I'll jump to, it says in verse 16 of Colossians 1, For by him, or by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, the visible things and the invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. So did the Father create the world? Yes. Did Jesus create the world? Yes. yes. Was the Holy Spirit there? Yes. Yes. So we see all parties involved. There's distinction but we don't know where those lines are where one did this and one did that. Did the Father do the stars and Jesus did the seas and the Holy Spirit did the land? Like, we have no idea. Was one like the architect? One was the construction guy? One was like the interior designer? Like, we don't know who did what, but they all get credit and all of them get worshiped for creation. All of them receive worship for creation. So Jesus himself is a part of creating everything that's been made. It also says it was created by him, through him, for him, and other translations will even say to him. For him, to him, by him, through him. So any preposition you want to throw in there seems to have to do with Jesus and creation. And it goes on to say that all things are held together by him as well. So things are sustained by him. So you and I, and I'm not gonna to pretend to be a scientist, uh, but like we'll consider things that are consistent laws of nature. But at the end of the day, I've, I've read some of these studies, like we, we truly don't understand why gravity works exactly the way it works. When it comes to an atom, so we thought we had that thing figured out. You know, with the nucleus, you had your protons, you had your electrons, you had your neutrons. But what we're finding is there's actually particles within those particles, like boson particles, and like there's little things inside of the little things. And there's a day when our microscopes get better there might be little things within the little things within the little things. Like We haven't even figured out an atom yet. We haven't figured it out. And exactly how every molecule holds together, I know that we have positive and negative charges, but at the end of the day, there's some of them where scientists will say, we're not totally sure why this works the way it does. There's, just, there's an end point to our knowledge in some of these areas. Jesus holds it all together any of you watch Infinity Wars? Any nerds like me in here? Oh, nerd. Nerds. Nerds. So, oh, wait, I don't want to say the end of it. The end of it, something happens. I'll ruin it. Do you mind? Can I say it? So, at the end, like, certain people just like fade away. Like, they just like disintegrate into nothing. In my mind, Like, if Jesus were to take his hand off sustaining the universe, that's the picture that I have of our universe. It just kind of, like, goes into pieces and just, like, disappears into nothing. Like, he sustains it and holds it together. He does that, okay? So, like, we can worship him all the time for it. The fact that everything's being held together in my body is an act of Jesus every single moment, every single day. Sometimes we forget the beauty of the moment-to-moment work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all around us all the time. It's crazy amazing. Like birds that are eating things in the trees that you and I, that no human ever sees. Like God's taking care of that bird. He's taking care of the ecosystem and he's watching it Mm -hmm. and he's measuring it and making sure everything's happening just the way it should. The same thing's true of a star 25 light years away from here. Everything is working just the way he wants it to there because he's planned it, he's organized it and he's present with it, sustaining it, making sure it's doing exactly what he wants it to do. It's beyond us. But Jesus is personally involved with all of that all of the time. John chapter 1 verse 3 says all things came into being through Jesus and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So nothing exists if it doesn't come into being through Jesus. So Jesus receives credit for the creation of all things. This necessitates that he himself was not created. Jesus also maintains and preserves all things at all times everywhere. All right. I think I've already answered those other questions. Let's go down to Christ in the Old Testament. Christ in the Old Testament. So Christ is in the Old Testament. We're going to go kind of deep with this. Here's John Walbert, our buddy again. Listen to these words because he's saying something kind of big here. A comparison of the Old Testament and the New Testament passages proves beyond doubt that the Christ of the New Testament bears the title Jehovah or Lord in the Old Testament. This fact has long been recognized by conservative theologians. The Jesus of the New Testament and the Jehovah of the Old Testament are not dissimilar. Okay, we're gonna go deeper with this. Zechariah twelve ten. So throughout the book of Zechariah, prophecies are being made. God is speaking to Zechariah and Zechariah is writing down prophecies. And then he says this, "'They will look on me, the one who's been giving these prophecies, they will look on me, the one they have pierced and will mourn.'" Did God the Father ever get pierced? Is a clear reference to Jesus the Son. It's a clear reference to Jesus the Son. So who's the one who's been speaking with Zechariah throughout the entire writing of this, of this prophecy? Jesus has been interacting with Zechariah and giving him these prophecies. Interesting. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Christ is declared to be Jehovah, our righteousness. Malachi 3, 1, he's considered Jehovah of the temple. Okay, try to follow this point with me. This is confirmed by the New Testament, the use of the word Kyrios, for Christ, the word used in the LXX as the equivalent of Jehovah in Acts 2.36. Okay. What's the LXX? Anybody remember what that thing is? Septuagint. Uh, Septuagint. Septuagint. What's the Septuagint?
1: It's the uh, Greek uh, Old Testament.
0: Good. All
1: right. Greek.
0: Yes. Well done. So that's the Septuagint. That's just the way that they represent it. And... Uh, It is, it's the Old Testament written in Greek. It was around when Jesus was around. In fact, 80% of the time when Jesus quoted the Old Testament, he quoted the Septuagint. So Jesus considered it authoritative, okay? And the Greek word that was used for God in the Old Testament was Kyrios, okay? In the New Testament, when Jesus himself is called Lord on multiple occasions, it's the Greek word Kyrios. So if you only knew Greek and you only read the Old Testament Greek and the New Testament Greek, you would just naturally assume that every time where it says Jesus is Lord, that's the exact same references to the Lord in the Old Testament. Like, there's no distinguishing those words. Okay? So that's just interesting. Jesus gave this authority. All right? That's just, there's one piece. I'm going to give you more pieces of stuff to think about. Um, Christ is also identified as Elohim the Elohim of the Old Testament. So remember, God has multiple names through which he reveals himself in the Old Testament. Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim. And here we see Jesus called Elohim. In Isaiah 43, it says, prepare the way of the Lord, or prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God or for Elohim. Okay? Where do we see this verse realized in the New Testament? Who's this talking about? Do you remember? Who makes the, John the Baptist, yeah. He's the one who kind of clears the way and prepares the way for Jesus. So this verse here is talking about Jesus. And here he's called Elohim. He's called Yahweh and Elohim. So all the big names that are given to to clarify who God is in the Old Testament, Jesus bears and receives those same names. Whether you go to the Greek or you stay with the Hebrew, he receives those same titles and those same names. Isaiah 9.6, Jesus is called the mighty God or the mighty Elohim. Theos, or God in the New Testament, parallels Elohim of the Old Testament and is used of Christ over and over and over again. Let's go a little deeper. Next page. Old Testament Theophanies. Old Testament Theophanies. A Theophanies is a moment in time where God reveals himself in a temporal and personal way. Like he actually shows up on the scene. Okay, so Jesus is seen visibly and personally in the Old Testament. All right, back to John Walbert. He says this, it is safe to assume, okay, catch these words, this is like a big statement. It's safe to assume that every visible manifestation of God in bodily form in the Old Testament is to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying every single time God is seen in the Old Testament, it's Jesus. Can you give me some examples of when God is seen in the Old Testament? burning bush. What would you say, Bill? Yeah, so also in, um, what was it, Exodus 33, where he says, now show me your glory. And God says, okay. And he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then it says, the glory of God passes over him, he puts his hand on him, and then when he goes past him, he lets him see his back. Walvoord is saying, that's Jesus. Where's are some other examples? He's, Abraham and the visitors. Good, Trudy. And and so did you catch all those? He shows up and talks to Abraham outside of Abraham's tent. He talks with Gideon. Who wrestles with him? Who wrestles? Jacob. Jacob wrestles with him. The angel of the Lord takes himself down to Sodom and Gomorrah and deals with them. Fiery furnace, right? The three go in. They look at and there's four. So that's also Jesus. In Joshua, there's a point where they're about to go into battle in chapter five, and Joshua looks over and here's this mighty warrior ready for battle. And <clears throat> Joshua goes up to him and basically lays prostrate before him. Now, whenever a man lays prostrate before an angel, what the angel usually does is he says, oh, get up. No, it's, that's improper. Like, that's not how you respond to me. That's not the way this figure response. He says, "While you're down, there take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground." So it's it's the Lord. The Lord is leading his host, his army. And that. <clears throat> that's who it is. So So the example there is Joshua 5. I guess I just talked through it. But then I have all those verses listed below. You hit a lot of them. There's tons of verses where we see the Lord showing up on the scene, even in the cloud during the day and the fire by night that led the Israelites. It says that God looked at the Israelites through the cloud, like he was in the cloud and he was in the pillar of fire. So that was God. That was also a Theophanies, a appearance of God during those moments as well. With the tabernacle and the temple, there were moments when God himself would show up. My okay.
1: Favorite, Genesis fifteen, the smoking fire between the two so oh. animals broke the, of the covenant.
0: Yes. So God shows up on the scene in the Theophanies when He sets the covenant with Abraham. Good one. Yep. Smoke fire. The angel of the Lord. So, the angel of the Lord, it appears that these are instances, wherever you see that, where God meets with his people in a temporal form. The angel is identified with and as God. He has the power to give life. He is all-knowing. He can judge the earth, and he can forgive sin. All of these things only God can do. So, how can we conclude that every time God was seen that it was Jesus? Here it comes. John 1.18 says this. No one has ever seen God at any time. The first time I read that verse, it messed with me. I'm like, "Wow! Did I just find my first contradiction?" because like, I read that, like I think I was a junior or senior in high school, and I'm like, "I know my Old Testament. Like, people saw God all the time, right? Saw God all the time. So, what in the world does this mean? No one has ever seen God at any time. Any thoughts? Trudy can't answer. Someone else has to answer. <laughs> any thoughts? Never so seen, seen, the seen the father. Okay. Can't
1: see him in his full form.
0: So perhaps it's meaning like in his full glory, you can't see him.
1: I mean, like the Theophiles, he he was in the form of an angel or a man. Mm-hmm.
0: Not. So he was concealing some of his glory so that man could be in his presence. Okay, so maybe that's it. Ouch. Let's see how the the rest of the verse goes. See, that's always tricky. I just read half the verse. And that's always bad interpretation when read half the verse. I just, but that was my fault. That was tricky on purpose. Verse 18 says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He is the one who has explained Him. No one has ever seen God the Father at any time. But the only begotten one, Jesus, is the one who has explained Him, who has revealed Him, who has shown Him, who has made Him known. So in Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the one who basically makes the Father known. In Colossians chapter 1, Jesus says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the one who's the visible. God's invisible, but Jesus is the visible one who makes the Father known. So we shouldn't be surprised here in verse 18 that this is what's being described. The fact that in the New Testament is Jesus who makes the Father known probably didn't just start in the New Testament. It wasn't like in Matthew 1.1 that the Father and the Son had a conversation and said, well, you know what, I'm getting tired of always showing up on the scene. Son of God, why don't you go out there and you start showing up on the scene? That's not probably how it worked. The roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have probably been, been consistent throughout all of eternity. So the Son has always been the one who's revealing the Father, so as you look in the Old Testament, whenever a Theophanies pops up, we're going to assume that it is Jesus, the Son. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions about that?
1: never a tag team.
0: Can you think of any? No. Well, So there's a tag team in, Trudy's, watch our mind work. In, in the baptism of Jesus, right? We see some tag team. In fact, it's almost like a, it's more than two. I don't know if I can three. WWF is like a whole, everyone's jumping in the ring at the same time. But uh, you see the Holy Spirit, you see the Father, and you see the Son all in action at the same time. Okay. Is
1: the word for God the same in that verse in John that you just talked about? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is, in, who is himself God. Is it the same exact word both times?
0: Mm-hmm. I would assume. And if it's not there, it, it is repeated in multiple other places. Okay. I just didn't know yeah. if it was the
1: same word for God that was used both times.
0: It, in it, the Greek, it's, there's usually only... We've never
1: seen God the Father, but the one and only Son who is, who is himself God. I mean, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a distinguishing fact, there's a distinguishment made in that verse that no one has ever seen God. We know someone mm-hmm. has, but he, who is himself God, and only the Son who is himself God. Yeah. So it, I just
0: wondered if it was. The it would it would be the word theos in both of them. I'm ninety five percent sure. Okay. But but the answer is no one has ever seen the Father. Like it says it. No one's ever seen the Father. He's a spirit. He's a spirit. The Holy Spirit. You can't see spirits. No one's ever seen the Father. Okay, I'm gonna poke something real quick. So will we see the Father in heaven? Yeah.
1: That will be my
0: question. So do you have an answer? It just says in First John. Him as he is, who who is that? To when it says in First John, when Christ returns, we'll see Christ as He is. Is there a verse that says that, they're
1: the same?
0: Yeah. What about that? They're the same, right? But they're also distinct. That's our that's our doctrine. They're distinct. They are distinct. Three persons, one God. Well, we see the Father in heaven? Maybe, maybe not. Yes, no. Yes, no. Yes, no. I mean, like, there's no verse that there's no verse that says it. So the verse, the Bible doesn't say with clarity. I would think, yeah, it would make sense to me that we would, but it doesn't say it. And it is interesting that through all of created time, it's been the Son revealing the Father. Will that continue through all of eternity? I don't know. It does say that the light of the sun is what's going to light heaven, right? New heavens, the new earth. There's no need for a sun. Like, the radiant glory of Jesus will be enough. It doesn't say the radiance of the Father. It says the radiance of the sun will be enough. So I don't know. I don't know. So I'm not going to make a statement on I don't know. I just think it's an interesting question. So once you figure it out, let me know. And I'll put it in my book. Um, All right.
1: into the mic There's a new heaven and a new earth will there also be a new universe Rest
0: of- one would assume that everything will be restored everything was cursed everything is broken everything will one day be restored yeah last paragraph on 6 says this as far as we can understand it, the trinity has always existed as the father the son and the holy spirit Does that make sense? It wasn't like he created and they said, well, how about you play the father role? You play the son role. You play the spirit role. It's they were always who they were, always. Each is distinctly and completely God, while also having determined roles. In the New Testament, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It would be reasonable to suggest that the son has always represented. He has always revealed and explained the nature and the character of the father. Theologians and students of Scripture suggest that the appearances of the angel of the Lord is the pre incarnate Christ interacting with his people. Let's read the top of page 7. It says this The entire Old Testament is pointing to a coming Messiah. God's promise to Abraham, to Adam, to Isaac, to Jacob, for all nations to be blessed through one who is to come. This is the heartbeat that comes through every book, every chapter, every verse of the Old Testament. How does it change your view of Christ to view him as the one who's directing and interacting with Israel throughout their history? I mean, because that's kind of what we're saying here. It's like, as you watch Israel, it's Jesus is the one who's jumping into the mix. Is Jesus the one who's in the cloud? Is Jesus the one who's walking with them, talking with them, fighting for them? In the Garden of Eden, who was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? Jesus, Jesus was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, according to these verses. Yes, it does. So.
1: But the Father and the Spirit were, were, are present. In spirit? In spirit, past, present, future, just as Christ is as well. So, I mean, it, it, yes.
0: He, every he, part of the Trinity, every person of the Trinity is equally eternal. There,
1: equally there, equally present in all these areas as well. So it's not just Jesus. It's not just Jesus. Did they walk Christ
0: with three people in the Garden of Eden or one? But this, yeah. did, they, did they see all three, or did yeah, they see the spirit, you see the, the form. It's it's they refer to they themselves see. as we and us. So they're, they're acting together all the time, but we see one of the three show up on earth and take on flesh. We see one of the three show up in the garden. It doesn't mean they weren't there, right. but they weren't having a a, converse, a four-way conversation. I mean, Adam and Eve were talking to the one who was walking with them in the garden. But here's an interesting picture. And this this just struck me like today when we were doing this. So oftentimes when I look at that moment, after Adam and Eve have sinned, they put on the fig leaves, right? And they go jump in a bush. Fig leaves jump into a bush. And then God shows up. Jesus, Jesus shows up. And he says, where are you? You know, Adam's like, I'm in the bush I'm over here. So he's like, well, "Come on out of the bush." So they come out of the bush, and you have the serpent who receives a curse and judgment. You have Adam and you have Eve who also receive punishment. As Jesus is standing there and dealing out the punishment, okay, the ground itself gets cursed. Adam receives curse, like of death. To dust you shall return. And spiritually, in that moment, they die spiritually. Eve is is given punishment, um, like painful labor. Adam painful work like all of it Jesus deals out all the judgment all the punishment knowing that none of them will be able to satisfy his wrath none of them will actually be able to deal with the punishment or satisfy it so whatever he puts on them he knows that he will eventually have to pay their debt for them does that make sense like when he's when when he deals the punishment of spiritual death the only way for him to fix it is for him to die in their place if that isn't love love. but because he's holy he didn't withhold the judgment he had to place the judgment on them because he's holy but in the same moment he places it on them he knows that it's actually going to at the end of the day land on his own back what a wild scene because I don't want to ever thought of it from the point of view of what it would be like to receive the punishment I never thought of it from the point of view of what if I was giving out punishment that I knew was going to come back on me which is what Jesus was doing in that moment I just think that's wild.
1: Why did he not say, I will crush your head, and you will strike my heel? Why? Because it was Jesus that was saying those words. Mm
0: -hmm. Because he was foreshadowing it.
1: Yes, but it would have been (coughs) so much clearer.
0: (laughs) Matt, we're getting there. He said, I will crush your head. Let's go to page eight. Matt's thoughts, why didn't Jesus just say, I'm gonna smash your head? So, throughout the Old Testament, because God wants to do it this way, we see ongoing topology, okay? Topology is this idea where there's this foreshadowing. Like sometimes in movies they talk about seeing seeing Easter eggs. Have you ever heard that? Like you see something happening in the background that gives you a clue to what's gonna happen in the next movie or maybe later in that movie. It's just basic foreshadowing. The Old Testament is totally full of foreshadowing all the time on purpose. God kept it somewhat mysterious on purpose in His wisdom. He didn't give us that clarity. I would have liked it. Matt's already voted for it. But like, He didn't give us that clarity. So when it comes to people, So Hebrews looks at Aaron and and talks about how Jesus was like Aaron in some ways, Aaron the high priest. He talks about Abel, and it says that Abel is kind of like Jesus in some ways. Adam is like Jesus in some ways. Benjamin, who was the son of sorrow, was like Jesus in some ways. All of these individuals in the New Testament talks about the fact that they're kind of like Jesus in this way or in that way. So all of these individuals went through particular experiences. He had particular temperaments and ways of dealing with things and things happening to them to give us little pictures of what Jesus would be like. It's a little mysterious. He doesn't just do that with people. He does that with events. Like even at the moment when Adam and Eve sinned and they had the fig leaves on, after he's done dealing with the punishments, he goes over and Jesus kills the first sacrifice to make clothing for Adam and Eve. You don't need those fig leaves anymore. I made clothing for you. So even in that moment, you see this crazy symbolism that something would have to die to even provide the slightest amount of comfort and covering for those who have sinned. Okay, crazy. And it goes on, the preservation of the ark. Most of the world in their sin perish, but God saves some. Deliverance out of Egypt. God's people are enslaved by taskmasters who are beating them and mistreating them. You and I, before Jesus, were slaves to sin. We could do nothing for ourselves, total and utter slaves. God redeems his people out of Egypt and redeems you, his church, out of sin. Like that was on purpose. That wasn't just by chance Chance that happened to work out that one reflects the other. God was intentional in all these things. The way they entered into the land, on the next page, the things in the Old Testament, okay? The things, um, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, dead goats, dead doves, dead lambs didn't actually fix any of the sin issues in the Old Testament. It didn't fix any of them. Not one. But it was this ongoing symbolism for the people to realize that when they sinned, it was worthy of death. Death. Okay, so it was symbolizing and pointing to this need for someone to die on a permanent level to take care of their sin because obviously that dead dove didn't fix my problem. That dead lamb didn't fix my problem. I still sin. There was a need for something more, something greater. I need a Messiah was the concluding thought there eventually. The tabernacle. So if you go into the book of Leviticus and you're like, all right, so it's this many cubits this way it's that many cubits this way, and it's this many cubits this way, and it's so many cubits from this thing to this thing, like you start thinking, why am I reading this? This is so boring. But if you spend a little bit more time and realize that the way that the tabernacle is set up, where the Ark is put, the fact that there's this thing called the seat of atonement on top of the ark. There's two cherubim or angels on either side. So you see things that God's blessed man with, but between man and God is this thing that where atonement needs to happen for man to have a relationship with God. And then there's this room that no one can go into because it's considered holy, and man doesn't get to go into it because man doesn't meet the requirements of God's holiness and righteousness to enter in. Like When you start looking at it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is drawing a picture of what God is like. This is drawing a picture to help me see that we need a Savior or else we have no hope. We can never enter into be with God unless someone comes and fixes this problem. So even the little minute details within Leviticus can become sources of worship when you realize that they're pointing to Jesus. All of a sudden you don't mind reading about cubits. Okay, before you get it, cubits are annoying. But after you get it, it's kind of fun. So institutions and ceremonies, the priesthood, the feasts of Jehovah. If we had time, it'd be so fun to go through all these different feasts. Each one points to a different aspect of God's character, of Jesus's character, and what he would accomplish for us on the cross. So each feast was very intentional. It was pointing to a need within them and pointing to the greatness of a savior yet to come. Cities of refuge at the bottom. Do you remember those? If you by accidentally hurt your neighbor, broke your neighbor's ox's ankle, and you thought you wouldn't get like fair representation, okay, in terms of a potential consequence or judgment for that, you got your backpack and you ran to a city of refuge. You got out of there, okay? You ran to a city of refuge and you were given refuge until you knew that you would have a fair trial. Jesus is your city of refuge. Jesus is your city of refuge like that's in the Bible because it points to Jesus all these things are pointing to Jesus it's the heartbeat that thunders throughout the Old Testament next page so you see the topo- the topology of Jesus but we also see prophecy of Jesus if you have time on your own Isaiah 9 Isaiah chapter 11 especially Isaiah chapters 52 through 53. You think when you're reading Isaiah 52 and 53 that you're reading about Jesus on the cross in the New Testament, like it's so clear, but yet it was written 700 years before. It's just, it blows your mind. But there are tons of prophecies given about Jesus that were fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. The next two pages of your book, I give you an Old Testament reference, the prophecy that was made, and the New Testament fulfillment of that prophecy. I didn't give it to you. Wayne House gave it to you. I just copied it and pasted it out of his book. But that's a really cool study you could go through to see all the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Mathematicians have done like studies on what is the possibility for any one figure in history to fulfill even just like eight of these. And the number like doesn't fit on pages. Like it just goes on forever because it's virtually impossible One of the most powerful testimonies to the deity and person of Christ are all the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in his birth, life and death. There is no explanation to words being spoken 700 years ago, 800 years ago and on back being fulfilled in a person centuries later who was born, who meets all those requirements of all those prophecies. I mean, it's impossible. The only explanation is there must be a God guiding history. That's the only explanation. So I don't get into a lot of conversations with people evangelistically where I just want to try to argue with them and try to argue them into believing. I've never had somebody say, all right, you intellectually got me, got me. I believe. I've never I've had somebody do that. Like usually just makes them angry, right? And then they walk away. But this is something that I'll take the time to show them. Because what this does is it makes them go, there really is no explanation to this. Like I don't have an explanation to this. So it makes them start wondering about their worldview. There must be a God that fits in here somewhere because no one else predicts the future. Only someone who knows the future can predict the future. So I think this makes people think. Over a thousand years before Jesus came, many of the details of his life were already being mapped out by prophecy. Jesus teaches this truth to some of his followers on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you remember this. Jesus opens up the scriptures. It says, beginning from Moses, from all the prophets, he interpreted, them, he interpreted them to these disciples in all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. So he basically starts just walking through Moses and the law. He walks through the prophets. He walks through the Psalms. He just starts showing, that's me. That's me. That's me. Like Jesus does that. He walks through the Old Testament to show those disciples where he is all throughout the Bible. And that's what we just did tonight. That's Jesus. And that's Jesus. And that's Jesus. And that's Jesus. It's all throughout. So if you ever hear me preaching on the Old Testament, and usually Matt preaches in the Old Testament, it's hard not to land on Jesus at the end of the sermon. If you're doing it well, you tend to land on Jesus at the end of the sermon. That's where your plane lands is on Jesus, because in some way it's probably pointing to Jesus. Let's go to page 13. Last little spot. At some point, you've probably read the verses in Ephesians chapter 3, or Colossians chapter 1, or Colossians chapter 2, where it talks about Paul saying that there's this mystery. Okay, there's this mystery in the Old Testament, which has now been revealed. Everything we've been talking about tonight is the mystery that Paul was talking about. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, it says, We receive a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. That's Colossians 2.2, okay? So, what is the mystery? It's Jesus. Why is it mysterious? Because God wanted it to be. I don't know why it was mysterious, but he revealed himself over time, and in his wisdom, he knows that that's the way it should have been done. So Paul looks back on it. All the stuff we just looked at, and we only just dipped our toe into the deep side of the pool. We just dipped it. Like he said, all of that is mysterious on purpose. God designed it that way. But all of it is found in Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. He's in the mystery. He fulfilled it. He revealed it, and he's explained it. It's Jesus. Okay? So that's kind of how Paul lands that plane. So I thought we just it with Paul right there. Right on time. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you that your, your person, your presence, thunders throughout the Old Testament. As we spend time in your Old Testament, may we get excited about you, Jesus. May we worship you more as we spend time in your word. We ask that in your son's name. Amen.